Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. Today, we are honored to have our esteemed guest, Mona Holmes. She is a reporter with Eater LA, a journalist, I like to say, and uh, with a very interesting background and, a, and an interesting route to journalism. She studied international relations at San Francisco State University and something very interesting that I also recently learned. She was a rose princess in the Tournament of Roses parade and got to hang out with Gregory Peck. So I want to hear a little bit about that in a moment. Um, but Mona had a, uh, an interesting route to becoming a journalist. Initially, she launched a website called SheJ that focused on women, DJs, vocalists and producers. And then she started to do food blogging and began pitching stories to various food sections and outlets and then Eater, because they pay attention to who's out there doing the necessary stuff, decided to uh, to sign Mona up. So Mona, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is amazing. Well, good. I'm glad you're here. So we kick things off with a little short order question scenario that uh, I'm just going to fire a couple of things at you that shouldn't cause you to, to strain your brain too much and um, get your responses if you don't mind. All right. So what's been on heavy rotation on your playlist this past year? <laughs> um, let's see. There is I'm very serious about my playlists. <laughs> so on heavy rotation of what I'm listening to, yeah. um, a lot of podcasts, like the Still Processing podcast by um, Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris, two black um, columnists from the New York one. Times. I heard oh that my for God, the first time so the other good. day. Yeah, yeah. Their recent episode on the N-word is kind of, kind of shook me a little bit because they mm-hmm. just go very deep in their discussions. Yeah. There's that. I'm also a huge fan of the Talking Sopranos podcast, which I'm a little obsessed with that show. But a lot of, because I've been writing so much, a lot of of music that's very uh, uh, lyric uh, absent, you know, so yeah. very blippy, very electronic, some jazzy, smooth kind of beats, you know, that I don't get distracted from when I'm trying to put words together. Right, um, right. But that's, uh, and luckily, people have composed those kind of playlists, it seems like, and a lot of them are recent. Um, and so I just give those a nice deep dive. They're pretty wonderful. Yeah, there has been, you know, a, a proliferation of just quiet music this past yeah. year. And I think it, that was called for, right? We, we needed a little peace. Um, okay. Which food delivery app do you use most often, assuming you use one at all? I don't. I don't. You don't? I don't believe in, I have a problem with the pricing structure and just the overall structure of how these delivery apps like um, Uber Eats uh, any one of those delivery services, they do a disservice to restaurants. They often don't follow um, sometimes city ordinances that minimize or limit their fee structure. Since I'm at home and since I have the time and I will either order directly from the restaurant if they have it, uh, have it on their website or I'll just go and call it, um, call it in and pick it up myself. 
I don't believe now, in see, using delivery apps. That's what happens when you ask someone who really knows from the restaurant side of things to what impacts places. And you're absolutely right, Mona. And, and operators certainly do appreciate when you order directly because the fees that those services take out are pretty exorbitant. And that's and, another discussion. And some of them, and some of them, including DoorDash, has gotten in trouble for taking tips away from drivers. So I just cannot get behind that model. If I, if any of your listeners can, you know, really hear that, you know, their restaurants are doing terribly right now. And so to take even a little bit of a percentage away from an order is really going to hurt them. So I don't believe in ordering from them unless you're ill, <laughs> you right, know, right. by all means do it. Um, but otherwise, get up and get in your car and do it the old fashioned way and go and pick it up. I fully support that. All right. Your next vacation spot <laughs> um, actually, Germany, because my uh, niece just gave birth three weeks ago. And when things open up, we have to go and see my my grandniece. And then from there, my husband and I want to scuffle around a little bit. Um, and I'm not exactly sure where we're going to go after that. I have a lot of people I want to see. Yeah, Germany is phenomenal. I, I was in Munich and Luxembourg um, several years ago and actually many years ago, the first time. And I was amazed at the music scene there, how soulful it was. The stuff that they were playing in the clubs was, first of all, European music I had never heard, but then so much soul. And I was really kind of surprised mm-hmm. that uh, the music, although I shouldn't have been, you know, had, had made it across the border to that extent. Especially Berlin. Berlin's music, whew, it's so good. Yeah, Berlin's, I have not been there, but Berlin's supposedly a very happening city. Um, what are you reading? Uh, I am actually reading um, Garrett Kennedy's um, book about NWA, <laughs> oh. um, and it's it's uh, it's been out for a few years, um, and I'm diving into that. I'm going back and forth between that and Central Avenue um, jazz sounds um, that came out twenty plus years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, depending on what mood I'm in, you know, I'll go back and forth between those two. Yeah, I, I want to come back to the Central Avenue jazz scene a bit later in the in the podcast because there's mm-hmm. some things I want to talk to you about there. Uh, and I just put down um, Alice Randall's Black Bottom Saints, which if you if you have not read that, I would Ooh. I would highly recommend it. It's fantastic. I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Impossible Burger. Are you a fan? I am. I live with a vegetarian. Did you know? I do. <laughs> I do. Um, I am not. Um, I. It needs to be doctored up significantly. Um, I like it better than the Beyond Burger, um, but it's a great way for my husband to get um, some extra protein in his diet and just and it's quick and it's easy. Yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, I'm with you on that, too. And I and I also prefer it over the Beyond Burger. Um, mm-hmm. And I've tried to impress John at Post and Beam to to put it on the menu. So we'll we'll see if it makes it. But I've been watching uh, several concepts really gain some popularity and, and the the uh, Impossible Burger, the Slutty Vegan out of Atlanta, for one, has certainly mm-hmm. uh, made some headway with that. All right. So I want to come back. And before we get into the heavier stuff, I want to touch on this Rose Parade thing and you and Gregory Peck. (laughs) Tell me about that. So, Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, the Rose Parade, everyone knows that happens every year on January 1. There's a lot of events that lead up to it um, uh, starting in about October. Um, And every year 
young women ages 17 through 21 in the Pasadena area can try out for the Rose Court. And um, I was 17 and decided to try out like all of my friends did. It was kind of the thing that we did because I grew up in Altadena. And I, I had no idea that I would make it, but I just you know, kind of did my thing. And and it turned out to be an incredible experience because there's a bunch of speaking engagements and just things that you do um, as part of the Tournament of Roses organization to create awareness and also show off, show off yourselves as an organization when you have a grand marshal like Gregory Peck. And so we went to a bunch of different events with him and I got to have a lot of conversations with him as someone who was a big fan of him and his acting. Um, he was the most gracious, humble, and really funny, um, kind of shockingly funny guy to, to spend some time with. And, you know, I was completely starry eyed and had a really great time just, you know, representing my city. That is um, so cool. Did you, did you ride on a float? Did you do that, that whole thing? I rode on a float down Colorado <laughs> Boulevard. Um, videos? I, I have no videos, but I have photos. I am completely willing to send you one, Brad. Please. <laughs> Only because you're one of my that. favorite people. Um, but yeah, it was the 80s. So I had very big hair, very uh -huh. big hair. Um, you know, the fashion is definitely dated, but I am very proud of being able to do that. Yeah, no, that, that's like super amazing. cool. So I mentioned, you know, your, your route to writing was somewhat circuitous, although you were always creative. Um, tell me a little bit about the, um, CJ that you, cause you focused on women DJs, vocalists and producers. Now that was, and you studied, um, you wanted to go to work for the state department. And your major was international <laughs> relations. So, so from there to women, female DJs, just tell me about how that evolved, how that happened. Well, music has always been a huge part of my life. I was the, you know, I was very, very lucky to have a dad who had an entire room, the den that was dedicated to like a wall of albums. And I was the, the daughter who went in there and just DJed for the whole house on Sunday. And, you know, and so he was thrilled that I just took to that like a fish to water. Um, but also growing up in Los Angeles, um, and being able to go to so many shows, um, you know, I just have this love for music. That's always been a part of the background. Um, and, um, but when I went to college, you know, I was, I've always been a news person. We listened to the news when I was in the house, we read newspapers, um, and that was just something that my family did. And so I naturally thought that that would be a good way for me to extend my interest in world events, newsworthiness by majoring in international relations and really getting down and dirty with, um, you know, studying sub-Saharan Africa. That's just an area that I never got to study in high school or, or any part of my education, really. And so I just wanted to just dive into that. And I'm glad that I did because I just learned a lot about how um, organizations like the State Department and nonprofits and non-governmental organizations worked. Um, and it also taught me how to write very well, because when you have a major like that, you create briefings uh, constantly um, in preparation for you to go and work at one of these organizations. Um, 
until I had a teacher who pulled me aside and said, you are way too creative to do something like this. You will be a cog in a gigantic governmental wheel if you do this. And he's like, don't do this. He's like, please go into something that can utilize your gifts. I was very, very grateful for him. That professor is no longer on this earth, but I forever owe him uh, a debt um, for getting me out of there. So do we. Because, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I... Um, actually wound up working in the nonprofit world for a little while, as well as National Public Radio and also at KPCC, like many moons ago, until I kind of maneuvered that into, you know, writing stories. But there's always been this tug around music. Um, you know, in my 20s, I was just out and about seeing sometimes three and four shows a week going to clubs. I mean, I was I was the girl who was always out and about. I mean, that's what you can do in your 20s. You have the energy for it. <laughs> so I, uh, I met a woman on, on a chat room where we were all talking about all of these female DJs because we found that the coverage in most media tended to focus on male talent versus women. And so together, she lived in London, still lives in London. And from at the time I lived in Washington, D.C., uh, we started this website and it ran for almost a decade. And we had, it was, it was amazing. We got to connect with all of these, these talented women from all over the world. And it really gave me a chance to get my writing chops in. I mean, I made huge mistakes. I made, you know, I figured out who I was as a writer, being able to utilize that as a forum. So it was some of the hardest work that I've ever done and some of the best and sometimes the most terrible work that I've done. Because you have to make those mistakes as a creative to figure out what type of writer you want to be. Um and also realize, okay, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> um, and so, so it was, it was truly a good, a great experience. And I'm really happy to have that under my belt. I'm really proud of the work that we did. Yeah. And you know, it, it showed now that you're saying that, and of course, having looked into your, your background a little bit and always following the, the very interesting stories that attract your attention and that you write about, your approach is very broad. I notice. And I mean, you do pull out specific things that are very interesting. We're going to dive into a couple of your pieces. But now that I'm, I'm putting it together, how you how your perspective, you know, is is broad and you write from from that place. So it's it's really great to kind of pull those things together. So let's talk about food journalism this this past year you know unbelievable what and we're still going through we're still kind of in the grips of it although i got my first vaccine the other day yay oh good um, yeah but you know we we saw a lot of changes mona and a lot of disruption last year with covid and the pandemic and the protests and george floyd and all that happened and in food the wor the world of food journalism was also impacted in that way or was paying attention, I should say, or maybe is catching up. Um, give me a little bit of your take as to what you've observed this last year, the changes. I know Bon Appetit, James Beard, kind of elaborate, if, if you don't mind, from your perspective on what you see transpired in 2020. Okay. I'm going to give you the abbreviated version. Um, food media up until this year, even though it's still dealing with tidbits of it, has been accused for a long time by folks like myself, by another writer like Soleil Ho, who is a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, and many other writers of not fully utilizing 
voices that are black, Latino, Asian, queer, indigenous, any of those voices. And, you know, and like, for example, sometimes you would go to the New York Times and see a recipe for something like lumpia, the prominent Filipino dish, but the writer had a, a white surname. And they would get mentioned constantly on, especially now that social media is so prominent, you know, with people from that background saying like, y'all couldn't find a Filipino food writer. I know five. And you would see that happen a lot. And well-intentioned people wanting to get these stories out, but really didn't know how to, didn't make an effort into expanding their writers. You know, it's, and, and I see that in corporate America too, you know, with a lot of CEOs saying like, we're looking for black executives, but you know, we just can't find any, no, you're, right. you're the, the truth of the matter is that your network sucks and you have to, <laughs> you have to figure out a way to keep developing these relationships with people that can make your coverage better. You know, I would much rather hear of a lumpia recipe from a Filipino woman or man. And even in Los Angeles, we've expanded our Filipino food like tremendously. And we've got quite a few great writers and people in that realm. And so with Bon Appetit and even with Los Angeles Times food section, we found, you know, people were complaining about a lot of those things. But there were other issues at work, like a hostile workplace and in some cases abuse. And I know at Bon Appetit, where some of those people who left who look like me and you um, are my friends. And it, it's really tragic what they went through to try and expand the voices of black writers, chefs and beyond. Um, but what they wound up doing over at Bon Appetit was paying contributors of color less than their white counterparts. I mean, just, just blatantly and flagrantly. You know, it all came crashing down right around the time of George Floyd's death last yeah. year. And the longtime editor of Bon Appetit, um, Adam Rappaport, wound up resigning. A lot of the staffers left. And it, this is all good change, but it it's definitely come at a cost because Bon Appetit's um, parent company, Condé Nast, is you know, has its own issues yeah. with diversity. <laughs> so, you know, and they are moving very slowly towards um, pushing this type of diversity forward. You know, they're like, okay, great. We're doing this great stuff with Bon Appetit. Yeah, but what about your own masthead at Vogue and other publications that could use a little bit more voices and faces that don't all look the same? You know, it's it's been a, it's been a rough year, but I feel like we're moving in a really good direction. Well, that's good to hear. I was on the phone this morning with a, an old family friend, Marie Brown. Brown, who's one of the oldest, uh, she's an iconic black woman, publisher, literary agent um, from Doubleday back in the 60s and 70s. So she's seen a lot. <clears throat> and we were talking about, you know, from her point of view, there have been cycles where black was popular, you know, and diversity was popular. And she feels like, you know, we're in another one of those cycles. And uh, it's funny, you mentioned the, um, the Filipino certain recipes not being written by, you know, the folks who would actually have been indigenous and, and have created those recipes. There was an article in the LA Times this morning my wife sent me, and the writer basically was addressing those issues, how, you know, now it's a new day and we're going to, you know, all of these people are going to be acknowledged as creators of these recipes and blah, blah, blah. Happened to be a white guy writing the article. I just thought the irony of that was, you know, pretty, pretty funny. Still happening. Oh, man. I mean, yeah. if the intentions are good. However, <laughs> right. it's 
we still have a long way to go. So you joined Eater in 2017, and I, for one, was just ecstatic to see that you were there because, you know, I've been in the food business, Mona, since the 70s, and I can tell you what it feels like as an operator to not have someone who can talk about the experience from a cultural point of view and, and a contextual point of view with some connection to the culture. Um, it's nice to get coverage wherever it comes from, but it's really meaningful when it comes from people who you, you know, who come from where you come from. And so when I saw that you had joined Eater, I was just thrilled. How did, how did that opportunity come about? I know you were food blogging and you were submitting articles and pieces, but you know, you had to have gotten some no's before you got a yes. But how, how did that, how did the Eater relationship happen? Well, first off, it was hilarious when you and I met, when you emailed us and I said, I'll go down and talk to Brad because I don't think you were expecting someone to come in who looked like Was it me. that obvious? Oh my God, because I kept typing and you were looking at me like I had three heads <laughs> until you said, it is so nice to have you here. And I'm like, it's it's good to be here. Um, it was a good moment. Um, mm. But uh, I, you know, like every creative, you know, I, I had the writing shop. I know that I'm a good writer, but like any creative, you working for organizations like this, for publications like this, you do need someone to give you a break. And, you know, I had written a few pieces um, for mostly for some small publications and then one for LA Weekly that I sent to Matt Kang when I was applying for a job. You know, they only had two people on board at the time covering the entire city until 2017 when they were looking for one more person. And he just saw something in me that that he felt would be a benefit to covering the almost 30,000 restaurants in LA County. Mm. So I have him to thank, you know, for seeing something that other people wouldn't. And it is it is absolutely a beneficial relationship for me too because he pushes me to be a better writer. Um, our entire team does. It's actually a really, it's a great place to work. <laughs> uh, they, they, uh, they're very good with, um, yeah, they've just been great. Um, but pitching is something that any creative needs to get used to, you know, and it, it's pretty much just packaging your ideas in a way that can inspire the other person to say yes within in less than 30 seconds. I got so used to hearing no for a long time that it didn't hurt anymore <laughs> when people um, said it, if that makes any sense. It's just like, I, I started to listen to it like, like this, like this person just doesn't hear yes yet, you know, or I got to work on my pitch. You know, there are times when I went back to the same editor with a different pitch for the same story and they guessed it. And so there's a a balance between the two that can that I think just comes with experience. But just putting yourself out there and not being afraid of the no and keeping it in context of, you know, the no could be for a lot of reasons. They could have written about this last year and another writer is going to be following up on that story. It could be that they are planning a package of stories that has to do with the subject that I was writing about for them. And they're just saying no to me right now. There's a lot of factors that can go into that, you know, and also too, everyone's editorial process is different. And so you have to respect that and then just ask really good questions to them when they say no on how to get them to become a yes. Mm. And uh, it, it took a 
it took a long time and you know but it was it was all good well i guess there's a certain you know you have to have a, a bit of doggedness as a as a you call yourself a reporter and when i think of reporters i think of like you know beat reporters like i'm from new york i think of like people who drive hard for the for the story and keep knocking on the doors and asking the questions until you know they they pull what they need to pull in terms of information but uh, props to matthew kang for um, broadening the points of view by, by bringing you on at, uh, at Eater. And, you know, it's, it's really one of the things that I thought Jonathan Gold was just exceptional at, you know, reaching into the far corners of the city and making stories and, and, and making the, the folks who operate more quietly than, than others part of the landscape of the Los Angeles dining scene, which in my opinion has just become dynamic. I mean, obviously we're talking pre-pandemic and hopefully post-pandemic, but dining in, in LA has become just a, an unbelievable cultural experience. We, and I'm sure you would agree, but what's, what's your point of view on that? And I, I'm very lucky. I still have a lot of family in New York. I, I was born in New York, but I don't remember it. I was six months Mount old. Vernon. Mount Vernon. <laughs> Money earning. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I appreciate New York and everything that it represents and all that it's done. I just grew up, you know, where a bunch of people on my block all cooked extremely different things. I thought that everyone in the United States knew what a taco was um, or a burrito. And I'm a child of the 70s. When my cousins would come out from New York, they would be like, what's that? What's the matter with you? You don't know what a taco is? What <laughs> is <know>. sushi? <laughs> what's sushi? What is a, a pupusa? Like, they didn't know any of the stuff. And, and so I feel really grateful growing up here where that kind of stuff was just a part of my, you know, like just going down to the corner. I love that so many, uh, let me back up a little bit. I think you can fully get a sense of what Los Angeles um, is as a food city by seeing all the people from outside that come here trying to start a restaurant. There are so many and a lot of them are New Yorkers and I understand why the rent is a lot cheaper out here than it is mm -hmm. in New York, but they are figuring out ways to fit into this landscape because you can pretty much try anything. And that's a testament to the people who eat here. All of the people that I talk to that read Eater or just on Instagram, they are willing to try anything just to get a good sense of something new or different or better than their last place. There's an adventurousness around it. Um, you know, the heat levels that we use are very different here, too. I, I just appreciate them because they wind up pushing chefs to do more and be better spicier or not, um, mm -hmm. you know, people are willing to try it. And that, that sense of adventurousness fuels this, this industry in this town. And that's why I love it so much. Yeah, I would agree. This All these various micro neighborhoods with their own scenes mm -hmm. happening. And, you know, you can travel from Silver Lake to downtown to South LA and, you know, experience, some, experience something different. Um, everywhere there's you go. A bunch of soul, there's a bunch of soul food out in Antelope Valley. <laughs> like, I didn't a bunch know that. Of soul food. Yeah, I mean, who knew? I mean, it makes sense when you think about all of the black folks from the South that moved here for work at Air Force bases or military or adjacent to the government. And so where did they go? They went out to the Antelope Valley where there is military installations out that way and wound up working there and putting their feet in and settling and creating this, these amazing communities. And so, yeah, it totally makes sense when you know the background 
of of migration and um you know one of my colleagues farley elliott is the one who discovered those like he just gets out into these communities and figures that out but when you realize how absolutely big it is here um and how certain populations have have you know shaped a community it all really makes sense and the people that say eh, i'm not a big fan of la and i'm like that's okay you just don't understand it you're just missing it yeah farley is really cool i'm glad glad that you mentioned him and i'm going to come back to some of those outline communities that you mentioned because there's a piece that you wrote about black bars in south la and I, I, you know, see the, the destabilization of, of black Los Angeles in a way that I want to discuss with you. But you bring up an interesting point in some of the um, outlying cities that I want to get to. But before I do, do you feel do you feel pressure as an African-American journalist in food where there are few to to keep the focus on black entrepreneurs, black restaurants. What, what's the additional burden that, that if there is one that you feel to make sure that those stories get proper coverage? Uh, I don't feel any pressure. I just write about the stories that I'm most passionate about. And it just so happens that like, you know, there's usually twice, twice a week where I'll just get in my car and just drive often you will run into a story before you know it. Um, mm. Having a conversation with people, it's been a little bit harder during COVID, obviously. But, you know, I was just, I went down to this restaurant called Sunday Gravy that's um, in Inglewood and owned by this brother and sister who are just some of the nicest, loveliest people that I've ever met. And and I was talking to them. I said, you know, I've been wanting to work on a story about barbecue because there's all these guys all over South LA with these a smoker drums and you know I got to figure out a story about that and he's like you need to talk to the barber up the street and like quite literally two doors away and this half an hour conversation with him he was barber he had this drum in front of his shop he made me a plate and he was he was talking to me and said you need to go over and and talk to them at Woody's because you know Mr. Woody died and this is a year and a half ago and I said what do you mean I mean we all know Woody's they got three locations and the main one on Slauson I drove over to in a heartbeat and wound up talking to his cousin who said, yeah, Mr. Woody died. And Woody's is one of the most iconic barbecue joints in the city. And um, and he had died a month before, but the LA Times hadn't written about it. We hadn't written about it. I, I mean, no one knew. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was able to write my first obituary for Eater LA. Oh. And then everyone else picked up on the story. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was more than him, you know, being this this restaurant that had been open for 50 years, it was who he meant to the community. You know, his cousin owns Phillips, <laughs> Phillips Barbecue on Crenshaw. You know, there's all these outlaying, you know, extensions of this prominent man in the restaurant world. And to me, that is a the most compelling story because I grew up on their food. A lot of LA grew up on their food. And I know that more people would want to know about that than just me. So that kind of drives it. I don't feel any mm-hmm. sense of obligation. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, and now that I've been doing it for so long, people are really great about reaching out to me, mostly through Instagram. And I'll follow up with everyone and see if there's something there. That's just my process. It's different for every reporter. Sure. But but yeah, it's it's just a passion. That's that's yeah. what drives it. Well, you know, and that's that's beautiful, Mona. And, you know, the hope for a guy like me and I think folks, young folks like John and some of the, you know, African-American operators that are doing great things in Los Angeles is that with 
someone like yourself on the scene who's writing for a prominent publication like Eater and also making fantastic appearances on KCRW and, and the, the radio station that we all love in Los Angeles is that folks will be getting written about while they're alive too. you know, that we get to tell these stories when, you know, firsthand from the actual people who are living those experiences. And I, yeah. you know, cause so many, you know, I, I, I wrote a piece a while back about my dear friend, Alberta Wright, uh, in New York who operated Jezebel in the theater district for many years. And, you know, we weren't, my generation was just not one to capture everything on the cell phone. You know, so there's not a lot of video recordings of nights out and fabulous times that we had. And we experienced those places in those, those times real time, but we didn't capture them. So we don't have firsthand accounts. Now I'm telling her story as opposed to uh, an interview happening with her real time. So, again, I think, you know, your role is just just so important. I want to turn to something a little more topical, but I'm curious because there's a there's a term called media darling. And uh, we, we watch someone in Los Angeles who, you know, we would consider a media darling go through a, a bit of a tough time this past year. Jessica, Jessica Cosolo, who owns a place mm-hmm. called Squirrel, which is a really crazy popular breakfast spot. And she really became, oh, I think she's probably nationally known at this point. But um, yeah. she was accused of some questionable practices. Um, I know she recycled the product after it was found to have had some mold on it and kind of, if I'm getting this right, scraped the mold off and served it. And that became a very unfortunate story for her. Um, just give me your take on the idea of Media Darling and what happened here with someone like Jessica, who, who really didn't have a strong food background, if I'm correct, but became okay. this quote unquote Media Darling. It's a blind spot in food media or just media period, really, where we focus, we, I mean, we're all guilty of it, uh, where we focus so much on the charming storiness of something or someone and run with it. And, and when certain outlets like an Eater LA will write about someone that tends to set the pace, you know, there have been questions about Jessica's role in the restaurant in developing recipes and running the place for a while. And that's just not something that we dove into. And truthfully, in the wake of all of this, this is something that we've been discussing at Eater LA. Like, how did we miss that? You know, there have been a lot of media darlings and, you know, and a couple of restaurants that I just won't mention are not particularly good, (laughs) but they've got a really great name or a really great person who's running their publicity, who knows how to hit all the right angles and spots to create something like a Jessica Coslow. Now, I, I have to admit something that I actually really love her restaurant. I've had many a good meal there. It was the place where I would stop and get breakfast or lunch constantly. Mm-hmm. And so I was a little shocked when all of this went down. Um, but when my colleague, Farley Elliott, spoke to those employees about things that they saw and noticed over her you know, tenure there, they were impossible to ignore. But it's also helped us develop a better level of questioning whenever we're interviewing about a restaurant. 
and figuring out that like, okay, so until we elevate this person to rock star status, we need to talk to some of the people that they work with or have worked with so that we can check our own selves into making sure that we don't do anything like that again. Right. But it, it's, it mean, it will happen again. I mean, does she recover I, uh, Mona? I, I still, you know, when I drive by there, I still see people in there, you know, like wow. it's, it, I mean, what it really boils down to is that the food there is, is still quite delicious. I'm not so sure how her jam cells are, you know, after a hashtag like moldy jam was, you know, being circulated throughout the uh, internet. <laughs> so, but it's, you know, I, I don't think she's doing as well as she used to. I mean, but, but yeah, it's been a, but it was, I think it really was important for people to know about her business practices, but even more important that we know like, okay, so how did we do that? How did we elevate her and how can we make sure that we keep everyone on the same playing field so that everyone gets a chance to do that? Because I do see people who actually have done really hard work have like sous chefs and chef de cuisines who have, you know, really paid their dues and are now doing their own thing. And they absolutely deserve credit and they know how to run a food business because they've mm -hmm. spent years doing it. So, uh, so we're trying to focus on them versus someone who may not deserve the, the coverage. Well, I, I, that's encouraging. I mean, I, you know, obviously responsible journalism benefits everybody. So, you know, all for that. I'm curious. So let's, let's talk about the, the restaurant scene in LA currently. You know, obviously the, the pandemic has been just devastating for places. I know. L.A. has come back online now with 25 percent capacity inside. Outdoor dining is, is being allowed. But, you know, what what we saw this past year, Mona, was just really heartbreaking and, and very hard to take. What's your overall sense of a couple of things? One, how the local and state officials in Los Angeles and in California handled there. And I know hindsight's 2020 vision. Obviously, we can look back now and say, well, we could have done this a little bit differently or that a little bit differently. Yeah. But the net impact on the places that we love, independently owned restaurants, has just been devastating. What What's your take on what the policies that got right, maybe didn't get right? And where do you think, how do you think the comeback's going to happen? Do you think we're going to get back to you know, full capacity we'll use in the, in, in the sense that we've lost a lot of places and we're going to see those spaces yeah. get filled again with, with new restaurants or, or existing restaurants coming back online. Well, I am, I, I am thrilled that there is help out there right now in the form of federal state and city aid. Biden's package included something that, could, that was specifically done, designed to help restaurants and bars, just anyone in hospitality. I'm thrilled that that's there. Some of that help comes in the form of loans. Some of them are grants. Those are incredibly helpful, and, and so are some of the things that Governor Newsom proposed to. I worry that the city has not done enough to help either. I spoke to a restaurant owner who owns a jazz bar that's been mostly closed since you know, a year. And he said that he completely turned everything off and wound up getting a huge electric bill mm. and no money's coming in. And, you know, that's something for the city to assist with. 
And, you know, and he's navigating how to not pay that because like, I mean, when I say he's shut everything down, like lights have not been on in a year, but he's still dealing with like a $15,000 bill. Those little things I feel are so lacking in the mayor. I will knock our mayor um, from here until next week because I'm disappointed in the way that he's handled things. Um, He could help businesses out tremendously just by providing some kind of relief for any kind of gas, electricity, whatever bill. That would be incredibly helpful. I had issue with the way that the new information kept getting rolled out to restaurants. It was, um, whether it was state, the county, the health department would all of a sudden say, okay, restaurants, you have to abide by these guidelines, these rules. Um, but they were all of a sudden like, here, here you go. No support in doing them. All of a sudden they laid down the law and they had do that. And when they reopened outdoor dining last year, you know, a lot of people spent thousands, tens of thousands of dollars adjusting their outdoor areas to accommodate these new guidelines only to have everything shut down in November. All Any type of on-site dining was enough to push some restaurants over into the edge of closing. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that that the government is doing the best they can with what they have. But it was in so many cases, it was too little too late for these places that were barely hanging on, you know, and then we got to talk about bars. <laughs> bars have been most they've bars been have been unnecessarily restricted, right? I mean, they, oh. they've been shut down. If you don't serve food with a drink, you can, I mean, it's just, yeah. is there not a restaurant yeah. operator on the mayor's policy board to say, Hey, you know, this policy so. really doesn't make that much sense. I mean, it's, it's been tragic. There's a, a, in that same story that I wrote about, about black owned bars, Susan Carnell, she owns the living room on Crenshaw, just south of Adams. And she just put up a GoFundMe, you know, because she's just like, I've done everything that I could to make this work. But, you know, she's like, because I cannot open, I am, I'm in debt. I have bills to be paid. And she's one of less than five black owned bars in Los Angeles right now. You know, I just wish that there was something for her to be able to, you know, help navigate all of this. You know, I got so many texts from her saying like, Hey, is this possible? Are we allowed to do this? You know, whenever she had to call um, the Bureau of Alcoholic Beverage Control, you know, they would charge her a hundred bucks every time that she called like for a restaurant or a bar that was in trouble. That's a lot of money. So I have issue with the way things were rolled out. You know, it was brutal for restaurants. It's going to take them a long time to recover. A good percentage will not make it. I worry about what's going to come in and replace them, hoping that they're not all corporate chained, you know, unremarkable places that really don't represent a community. I, I know, do worry. That is my, you know, th- those those issues were in the pipeline pre-COVID, um, but certainly got accelerated to the point of now we're in the danger zone. But, you know, independently owned restaurants, we can't afford health care. You know, we can't match the salary structures of, you know, some of the larger chains. And we're constantly, you know, competing against them for employee retention and what have you. So some of the some of those issues were, were headed our way regardless. But the pandemic has just made things worse. But I want to stay on the because um, you wrote an excellent piece in Eater um, about black bar. And you mentioned that there are, you know, a diminishing number of black bars that uh, that currently are still open. And, and, you know, with the pandemic, who knows how many of those are going to survive. But when you see 
the the net effect of gentrification and how some of those businesses have been able to hang on, you know, after the civil rights movement and desegregation and watching some of the community migrate to points north in Los Angeles and other mm. cities around the country. Same things have happened in Harlem where, you know, the core black community, a lot of the next generation after civil rights moved out and went to do other things in other places. And a lot of those businesses struggled to survive as their customers found other places to go, but some of them have survived, like a couple of the places that you mentioned in your article. And now you have the second wave, gentrification, which is hitting them. And they're having to face, you know, rising property values and rising taxes. And do I stay? Do I go? Do I sell? And I'm worried about the disbursement of black culture as these communities disintegrate. What what it is your what's your take on that? You did a deep dive with these bars and spoke to some really interesting people. What What is your take on that? There is, you know, I'm grateful that there are so many great people in this city um, uh, that are, you know, like the group of people who came in to support the one main bar that was the central piece of the story of the living room. You know, this group of people, they called themselves the Black Hour, whose entire purpose was to support black owned bars and bring awareness to them so that they can stick around. These were all highly educated, professional, young, you know, groups, uh, uh, this amazing group that, you know, doesn't have to do that, but naturally has activism wired into their DNA. And so um, if they can't help it, you know, they, they will do everything they can to save this bar. And, you know, I, it's so funny when I still talk to my East Coast friends or family, they're like, oh, I don't know about the people in L.A. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like they're they're pretty amazing in what they do around creating community and building community awareness. You know, I uh, I respect that very much. And because of that, I, I feel a little more optimism towards that. However, gentrification is a very hard battle to fight when money's concerned and at the center of the conversation, uh, it's really hard to help these businesses stick around, these residents stick around. Um, you know, I uh, was reading a story about a woman who, you know, whose apartment building that she lived in for the last 40 years is getting converted to condos. You know, I mean, let's start there. Where does she go? Where does she move? All of the apartments in her area are, you know, not rent controlled anymore. Um, you know, I mean, her rent had been affordable for her for a long time, but she's going to have to move way beyond her community that she's become familiar with for decades and decades and into probably into an area where she knows no one. What happens to people like that? And then what happens to the businesses that she frequents are a, an equation, a problem that I don't think anyone's really been able to develop a strong solution for that would strictly have to come from developers and the government. And I don't really see them going out of their way for this 75 year old woman who has to move out of her place that she and her neighborhood that she has, she's loved all this time. Um, you know, I, I worry about the increased number of people now living in tents on, on Crenshaw Boulevard who weren't there before. It's a street that I, I used to drive down at least like three times a week because my mom used to live in Baldwin Hills up until two years ago. And there's just certain things that, that strike me as a result of gentrification. So, 
I, I am very worried because, you know, I love these neighborhoods. I am, I hope I don't cry right now. I am, you know, I'm, you know, we're, we're sensitive as reporters because, you know, we actually care about what happens. And if I can write a story that can help bring awareness to that, I'll try. I'll do my best. Um, but to have a solution around it, I'm just not sure. Where, where well, you know, you you are part of the solution if there is to be one, because if these stories don't get brought to the to the public for discussion, it's it's very easy to to tune out and, and pay attention to the million other things that everybody else, you know, has to look out for in the news and everything else. So I just again, I, you know, I applaud you. Um, I know these things are dear to your heart and just just shedding light on these stories, I think will will, you know, give them the prominence that uh, that they deserve. So we're winding down here. A couple of things I just wanted to touch on before we let you go. Um, I knew the time would go too quickly. I had a bunch of notes that unfortunately I'm going to have to not get to this time, but would love I'll to have you back. I'll answer fast. <laughs> yeah, maybe have you, maybe have you come back. Uh, and, and Anytime, some- Brad. Thank you. So this pop-up that I've, that I've been hearing about um, called Bridgetown, I know it's uh, uh, Barb. Uh, what, what's the Bayesian food? Right, it's yeah. from uh, Barbados, correct? Correct. Roti correct. and some interesting dishes. So tell tell me a little bit about that, and then I want to hear about what your plans are <laughs> long term. Because I, I know there's a book in you, and I, I wanted yeah, you know, tease you tease that out of you a little bit. So tell me about this. <laughs> okay. okay, full disclosure: Bridgetown Roti is my cousin's. My first cousin pop up. Um, she is a very accomplished chef um, who's been working at some big restaurants in the city for a while. Um, who during the pandemic lost her job and she wound up doing her own thing, which is pretty much just making our own family recipes, but with her own technical skill and ability. So everything on the menu is something that my family has eaten for decades, like the codfish cakes, or my aunt buys codfish cakes that she always had frozen in the freezer. Anytime you came over, if you didn't have time to eat them, she would send you with a bag home. But it's uh, the amount of joy that she's doing. Um, I see a lot with with other chefs that are doing what she is cooking from their heart, cooking recipes that really resonate with them. She works way too much, but she's so happy. And I feel like that joy comes through the food because it's pretty amazing. And then I worked with her one day, just dropping off food to people who were coming up to her, her ghost kitchen in downtown LA. And they are people from all over the place who will drive sometimes an hour to eat her food. It is amazing. And you order it online, go and pick it up, get it delivered. Um, it's fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and it's called Bridgetown. Bridgetown, yes. Um, yeah, she's even got, you know, patties, you know, with ox, filled with oxtail or oh. chicken. Oh, it's Any fantastic. Goat? Any curried goat? She is a goat freak. She will absolutely make that and she will actually butcher the entire goat herself. Oh, so, there you go. Yeah, it's no joke. Right. No joke. Um, and then, yeah, about a book. Um, yes. Uh, after writing that Black on Bars piece, I realized that there is, this is the first time I'm really talking about it, um, other than with my husband, um, I noticed that there is a, there was this amazing, huge Black nightlife in Los Angeles from, you know, the late 60s up until about 2000. That was all, all the nightlife was covered 
previous to that period with, you know, Central Avenue Jazz, mm-hmm. that book that came out in the 90s. Um, but it hasn't really been documented from this specific era that I'm talking about from 1970 until 2000. And as someone who grew up here, knowing that I, I mean, I got to know the names of a few of these places, but I want to be able to capture those experiences, hopefully some photos, some information from the people who went through it for a book so that we can have it um, properly documented. You know, I, the stories that I've heard sound incredible. And I mean, Marla Gibbs used to own a club, Red Fox. I want to know about these places. (laughs) I want to know who went there. You know, apparently there was some black owned club on Sunset that was a candy store. Yes. I, I just I just learned about that like maybe a month ago and I'm like I have so many questions. I have questions other people do too. And I hope to inspire folks to to know that like just black LA was just not in South Central. It was all over the place. And and I hope I get to get there and and I will be interviewing you as part of that, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be my pleasure. And you know, Mona Holmes, it's been so great having you here. You know, this might be something that I want to do uh every once in a while because you're just so full of current events and broad perspective and I and I know you're just gonna continue to be a rising star in 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 this world. Of, of food journalism and beyond. So I encourage you to keep going and, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was an honor. Well, welcome to the segment of the show we call How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz, our well-traveled co-host and my dear friend who's been all over the world and back. So Mona Holmes, wow. Eater wow. LA, she is yeah. really something. And I am, you know, I, I, I said this to her and I'll say it again, you know, having been in the restaurant business for as long as I have, when there was not anyone writing from the perspective of an African-American food writer, uh, publicist or what have you to, you know, have someone like Mona writing for such an important because either now is, I mean, they're the Bible in our business. They are first with the news and, and that's just the way that it is all around the country. So how, how impressed were you with Mona? I, I adored her. I adored her dedication and her perspective as a proud, unapologetic LA native. I do know what it is to kind of love the place you're from <laughs> and, and not take the kind of like furrowed brow when people reference your home place. She was very emphatic about paying homage to the value of Los Angeles and also sharing the nooks and crannies of spots and locations that people need to know about that may not have the benefit of of marketing because of its locale or um, what goes into it, but yet the significance of food source, um, gathering place, what makes people feel at home, and you know, um, you know, you know, I'm a creature of habit, and I, I resonate with like places that I know, but I also love the discoveries of places that are her referral. And she was one that, when I listened to her, uh, the heartbeat, the dedication, the ins- the insistence on advocating and patronizing. Um, um, particular restaurants that she identified um, rather than at this kind of stay in place experience where we're having the convenience of drop offs that I took note that while I, you know, benefit from, I don't have a car where I am, but I benefit from somebody dropping things off, but I really do. She reminded me to 
go by the place, mm-hmm. connect direct mm-hmm. with a place. And that's the kind of thing I actually do when I'm referring people, not through those online engines when you're booking a, a, a trip someplace, that just call the hotel direct, you know? So I, I love that. And I, because I'm not, have not been in Los Angeles in a year and change because of this, I'm antsy about mm-hmm. going to some of the places that she referenced because many of the places I went to, I frequent, you know, I was there for a little over 20 years, sold my house in 2014, and I kind of missed some of the spots, some of the things that mm-hmm. you talk about. You know, your restaurants is one of the places, restaurants plural, mm-hmm. is part of my um, GPS she referenced Jonathan Gold. We both talked about him, the yes. LA food critic. And while he was great for shedding a light on some of the lesser known markets and parts of town, Mona has been specific in that she has done stories about yes, African American operators and her, her, one of her last pieces was about black owned bars and, and, you know, the slow and steady disappearance of black owned bars. But, you know, it's, it's these stories and, you know, South LA, particularly Inglewood, um, mm-hmm. is an emerging market and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's happening at a time when gentrification is also inflating property values. It got the football stadium moving in, but at the same time, you've got, upstart black owned businesses like Hilltop Coffee, um, Post and Beam, of course, is still there. Hot Bill Chicken is, you know, nearby. So you've got these black owned businesses in a historically black area, but you've also got the pressures of gentrification, which, you know, are are dispersing some of the the core communities. So it's going to be really interesting to see how those businesses hopefully thrive and, uh, and, you know, stick around. It's absolutely tough. Gentrification cannot be our perpetual one. No, W H I N E, because mm-hmm. it exists. And there's money that's larger than us. It moves faster than us. But our culture is what resonates all day long. So who are we at the table? How do we signature ourselves? Whom are we? Are we prepared to have the conversation and pull up a chair at the table? Because what sustains a community is culture. You know, so you can move in and change the real estate, but that doesn't guarantee sustenance of, of marketplace. So I agree with you. But when when Magic Johnson went into that same area that people said to him, don't go. And it gave entree for other black businesses to come in, including Debbie Allen's Dance Theater and and yourself, Post and Mm -hmm. Beam. We ventured over and then bringing people from one side of town to another to say, try it. So we have to be strong, persistent, clear, definitive young ladies like Mona Holmes, emphatic. She's not alone. Who is that posse? It's a generation I don't know. I'm I'm delighted to come upon her generation of definitive, um, clear advocates with a mission um, in terms of the preservation of culture, black culture, brown culture um, in the industry. And I'm a student of hers just by virtue of listening to the program. I want to know more from her. Yeah, well, I, I, I agree. And I, I think we'll be hearing more from her. I think she's working on a book. And I know, like myself, you know, you you must miss L.A. And I'm sure you're feeling overdue for a trip back to Los Angeles. So I'm going to be very interested to hear what your take is on some of the recent developments and some of the places that I mentioned. I'm sure you'll visit and give us a little bit of a rundown yes, as indeed. to uh, places uh, that are that are must go to's in Los Angeles after you uh Take a trip. Ambassador Shabazz, thank you. Got my ticket. (laughs) All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. 
Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, coordinating producer Lauren Turner, theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production. 